Good morning and welcome to Ursa's podcast series. In this podcast, we get to explore topical economic issues and see how they affect our daily lives here in South Africa. We get to speak to experienced and knowledgeable people in the field. I'm your host, Margot G, and with me today, we have Professor Estian Kalitz, Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Stellenbosch. Today, we will be discussing his reflections on the aspects of public finance and fiscal policy in South Africa, something that is very relevant at the moment. Hello and welcome, Professor. What a pleasure to have you with us today. Good morning, Margot. Thank you very much. <laughs> so you have recently written a policy bulletin for ERSA, where you highlight and reflect several problems faced by the South African fiscus. What drew you to this research and which problems do you highlight? Margaret, fiscal policy and public finance has been a field of interest of mine for almost my entire career, both in teaching, research, and management. In recent years, I was particularly interested in fiscal and public debt sustainability in South Africa, and also the fiscal relationships between different tiers of government within the country, but also between different governments in a region where countries interact uh, substantially in the economics field. And so when I was given the opportunity to write a paper for ESA, I thought uh, a reflection on where South Africa stands today and what is likely to happen henceforth might be a good idea. So that was basically how the paper came about. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You asked me about the main points, well, there were many. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a very interesting read. I'm not going to try and, and deal with all of them. But I think what, what, what struck me was that many of the, quite a number of the, of the issues today, you know, are not fresh issues. They, they come quite a long way. They come a long way, even in some cases, long before the political change in 1994. And, and sort of an overarching perspective, I think, is served by just looking at the share of government in the economy over time. Mm. And if you look at that, you will notice that uh, this started off at levels in the, in the 10, 20% region uh, 50, 60 years ago. Uh, today, you know, the resources that are mobilized by the public sector, that is the three levels of government, general government, uh, sorry, a national government, uh, provincial and local, together with the state-owned enterprises, comprise almost 40% of mm-hmm. the resources in the economy. South Africa is not different in any way in that respect from what you find in other countries. Uh, But what is significant in the recent few years was that uh, the ratio, the share was fairly stable even after the election in 1994 uh, until about 2006, 7, 8. When we first had the financial crisis, which uh, lifted the level of GDP of government uh, resources uh, used in the economy, also for reasons of having to deal 
with the plight of people that suffered quite a lot. You know, mm. I mean, there were about a million people that became unemployed during that period. So there was assistance by government. And then we had the uh, other dimension, the Zuma years, which uh, is much talked about. I don't have to repeat that, which also signified a lot of waste. Even if the size didn't increase, the intended allocation was not what it used to be. It went into all sorts of dubious destinations. And then we had the uh, very recent fight of the pandemic and the Corona-19 virus. And that's where the figures that you have mentioned of soaring public debt, in a sense, a kind of a bloated budget. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, we all know about that now. Uh, even in the, in the in the budget speech when Minister of Finance, the mm. uh, emergency budget or the adjustment budget or whatever you want to call it that we heard of about a few months, a few weeks ago, people expected a lot of things from that budget, uh, which I think was totally unrealistic. Mm. I think the whole purpose of that budget was just to get the numbers on the table, explain exactly what is at stake in order to get legislative approval for higher expenditure and the different way of financing that higher expenditure. So the, 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 real, the real thing about how does the, or how is the post-COVID-19 economy likely to look at, to look like, that we still don't know. Uh, I don't know if the government knows, mm. because we are dealing with totally, you know, on totally unexplored territory, uncharted territory. So mm. we don't know what it looks like, but we hope we will get some better picture by the time of the medium-term budget policy statement in October. Yes, but we are still in the dark about that. Yes. That was the one one uh, sort of overarching context in which this paper was written. Then there were a number of, of things that I touched on, like the uh, the composition of government expenditure, uh, the tax burden. Uh, is debt sustainable at these levels? Is fiscal policy sustainable? What is the relationship between different tiers of government? How did those things develop over time? Was it in line with what the constitution intended, which I think had substantial number of federalist principles in it. But what we found over time is that the de facto and the de jure constitution uh, drew apart with a lot of centralization. One point that I just briefly touched on, we wrote another paper, I and a colleague on that some years ago, was what I would like to call fiscal centralization in a federal state. Uh, and we quoted a number of examples of that, but basically, you know, if you uh, look at the constitution, uh, it's the first time in South Africans' uh, political history that uh, local government and provinces actually had very clear mandates in the constitution. Mm. Uh, what one found in the past 
pre-94 was basically that uh, whatever were done at provincial and local level was very much at the behest of the national government. It was not constitutionally enshrined as we have today. But despite that, uh, there are quite a number of examples whereby the uh, opposite happened, centralization, not decentralization. And uh, it's interesting that in the constitution, if I remember correctly, the responsibility for making sure that there is sufficient capacity at local government level is the responsibility of provinces. They have to make sure that the, that the local government, the municipalities, develop so that they can actually be entrusted with accountability and responsibility and allocation of resources. Now, what happened in practice was totally different. And we find that many, in many cases when there were mis um, misconduct at subnational level, it ended up with a centralization activity mm. rather than an attempt to deal with the problem at source, namely to improve the capabilities at the decentralized level. Uh, when I'm, while I mentioned this, you know, in economics, we have this kind of saying as, you know, address a problem at source. Don't try and address the symptoms because then the problem yes. never goes away, which is in any case a good dictum for, 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 for life. Yes, <laughs> for definitely. any person, how you live. But anyway, so uh, we, we still find many times that, and I can understand that some problems are not easy to deal with and are politically <laughs> very sensitive. So it's nice to actually have something else to deal with, professing to be a solution for something that it is not actually solving. Yes. So we still have many examples of that. Definitely. You touch on very relevant points, and I think it's looking at the scale of how, you know, of being able to address these issues at source. It's obviously a logistical issue as well, just being able to communicate and work with these things. And I think it's definitely, it will take time before it, it can be done flawlessly. And um, you mentioned in your research that the South African debt is growing. And in the latest budget review, our finance minister mentioned that our debt to GDP ratio could be as high as 106% by the end of 2023. Why is our debt so high? And could you tell us where it's coming from and where the money has actually been spent? Certainly. Uh, let, let, me, let me just make one general point before I try and deal with this question. We are in a fiscal dilemma in many respects, not because of fiscal shortcomings, mm. but because of shortcomings in the economy at large. Okay. All of those in one way or another manifest in the fiscal terrain, in the fiscal sphere. So you can't, some problems you can solve within the fiscal apparatus and the public finances. But some problems you cannot solve there. And people expect a lot of from fiscal policy, which I think is, is not warranted. It's also not fair if you accuse the finance minister mm. of wrongdoings, where he is just the, 
is, is just the reservoir, in a sense, of things that went wrong elsewhere, or are not going according to good practices elsewhere. So when we talk about public debt rising, there are quite a number of dimensions to this. One could be, and has been from time to time, that when the budget deficit is presented to Parliament, the revenue forecast was maybe too ambitious, or the growth forecast was too ambitious. And these things some obviously go together because the one depends on the other. Which means that if reality uh, uh, occurs, you find that you have less revenue, the economy is growing less than you expected, but your expenditures you are committed to, you actually have legislative approval for the expenditure that the minister submitted to parliament. Uh, and that's not easily changed because there are a lot of vested interests on the receiving side of government expenditure, which is which has now been legislated. So our legislative process is such that unless you come with a revised budget later in the year, recognizing that the growth in the economy is not as high as you thought it would be, and your tax collections are lower, unless you do that, the outcome is inevitable, a higher deficit. So that has to do with the structure of budgeting, the process of budgeting. Okay. So that's that's one thing. The second thing, of course, that I think that's worth mentioning is what drives higher expenditure. Now it begins with expectations. Uh, expectations that eventually impact on the size of government expenditure is something that politicians need to manage. If that gets out of hand, and those pressures groups succeed in getting expenditure into the budget, it's not going to be easy to get rid of it. Uh, we had a very good example recently. Mm. Good as the case obviously is for people during the corona period to be given support because they lose their jobs, uh, hunger, increases, income drops or just falls away. Those are very good things that the government should attend to. Mm. But then you have a temporary increase in a allow, an allowance to people. Very small, I mean 300 rand a month or something like that. But the moment that was made public, and even despite the fact that the finance minister said that that will be will be terminated at the end of October. You had rumbles of you know it wasn't high enough in any case, so why why now reverse this assistance, which still even with that is still inadequate to help people that suffer. Mm. So the problem is how do you turn that around? Uh, if expectations get into the legislative thing. Another thing that we just heard the last day or two 
there's a group of economists that want to challenge the budget in the court. Oh, wow. because, because some of the prioritization that occurs as part of the package that the assistance package that are 500 million, there's an amount of about 130 million that is about reprioritization of government expenditure. They argue that that amount is also now going to reduce uh, the benefits to very poor people in education, in transport, and in health. And they say that's not constitutional because you cannot actually, government has a responsibility to, to finance the rights of people to have those individual rights which are in the constitution. So I'm just quoting that as examples of how mm. difficult it is, but the fact that it's difficult doesn't mean to say that you can't deal with it. You have to yes. deal with it. Yes. And if the, I mean, let me just give you another example. The size of the public debt uh, as, a, as a ratio of GDP, which uh, the, without even taking into account guarantees and all those sort of things, just the actual already uh, debt as it is accruing is going to rise to about 86% by 22, 23. Oh. From, it was, it was 29% in 2006. 29% oh. it now faces 86% and may even go higher. But just to give you an example of how debt rises, you know, <clears throat> if the economy falls or it uh, shrinks by 8% this year, Without anything else happening, the debt-GDP ratio will rise by four percentage points. Just wow. because that's the mathematics of it. The denominator and the nominator in an equation. In, in, in an equation. Mm. The nominator, the absolute amount remains the same, but the denominator, GDP, falls by, by 8%. Yes, but there are more things to this. There is also the composition of government expenditure, which are relevant to this particular point. In the first 10 years, more or less, after the constitutional change of 1994, government was actually fairly successful in controlling the growth in government expenditure. Uh, at least it, the, the share in the economy didn't increase. It increased a bit, but not remarkably. Mm. Because it more or less kept track with the growth in the economy. So it could increase, and it increased substantially in real terms, although the ratio didn't increase that much. It could increase because the economy could finance it. So we were able to actually entertain a significant increase in services rendered by the government because the economy could afford it. The problem is post, especially 2007-8, the economy could no longer afford the same level of services because the economy wasn't growing. And in recent years, and this year, it will actually fall. 
So this is pretty much the situation that you have with an individual household that continues going on a spending spree, <laughs> even after they've lost, or the breadwinner has lost his job, her job. Mm. I mean, it, 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 it can't work indefinitely for an individual, and it cannot work indefinitely for a government. There so is then, no thing so then, about that. No two things about that. Yeah. So then could we say that having large debt is a precursor to collapse? Is it catastrophic or is it, I mean, what is the actual, what does it actually mean then going forward in terms of this fiscal sustainability? Let me just give you an example. <laughs> Japan's debt GDP ratio is more than 200%. Okay. They have, they have a much larger rating than South Africa. Why is that? Well, in many respects in Japan, taxpayers see their investment in government bonds as a provision for old age. They don't have a welfare system like even like we have in South Africa. But the government is, has got legitimacy, has, has got credibility, and even though the size of the debt is substantial, it doesn't mean that the Japanese economy is in the same predicament as we find in South Africa. So I'm just quoting that because systems mm. differ. Mm -hmm. But in South Africa, we have to compare ourselves with many emerging market economies. And it was interesting that, you know, before the financial crisis, if you compare us to the likes of Chile, Malaysia, Brazil, Argentina, and so on, we were actually one of the better performers going into the financial crisis. Coming out of it and going beyond, we were not, we, we actually abandoned that good position. And we are now one of the more uh, fragile economies getting out of it. Let me give you another example, uh, Margot. There was research done uh, about two years ago. I attended a workshop where this was explained. Research done, comparative research about income distribution between a number of emerging market economies. Now, South Africa is lauded for a very good welfare system. Uh, and we know the components, it's welfare, uh, uh, assistance giving to, to families, to old age people, to children, and so on and so forth. Also criticized, but it's quite effective because it reaches the benefit or the intended beneficiaries. Mm. We have a very skewed income distribution, as we all know. Uh, the estimates of the Gini coefficient, which is the metric used to measure this, differs depending on, on, on the research and the period for you look at, but it's probably in the upper side of 60% or almost 70, which is indicative of a very skewing income distribution. So is Brazil. But now this is the interesting thing. Mm -hmm. If you look at what the fiscus does to reduce the income inequality in South Africa, it brings that ratio down substantially to in the upper 40s the Gini coefficient from about in the 60s, more or less between, you know, 50, around about 15 percentage points reduction, which is a, a remarkable achievement. 
even after that, even after having a fiscal redistribution, our Gini is still higher than Brazil's before their redistribution. Oh, wow. So, so, so the problem in South Africa is also one of the market income because people do not earn a living in the economy or we don't measure that if it's in the informal sector of the economy. Mm. So what I'm, what I'm trying to, to, to get to is that <clears throat> this is another example of a problem that manifests outside of the fiscus but it has a very definite impact on the fiscus because if you look at the number of people, and that's one of the cost items to come back to the expenditure growth, if you look at the number of people that have become in the, dependent on government to uh, deal with issues of destitute poverty or position in the society, all falls on government because there are no none of those people actually get employed in the formal or the informal sector of the economy. The second thing I want to say about expenditure is about the fact that we were, or the government was able to contain expenditure growth, even despite all these things that I've mentioned, because of the redistribution in the allocation of funds within the government sector, within the budget, towards uh, the real needy people in society and people that mm. had a, uh, a lack of access to social services prior to 1994. So that was the fact, that was why it was possible to deal with redistribution on the expenditure side of the budget without the size of the budget in the economy necessarily relatively increasing. But there was another fact and that was, there was a a substitution of, 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 of allocation away from investment, public investment. Now, we all know in the economy that public investment, in a sense, you know, complements private investment. I mean, if there are no roads, there will not be uh, investments in rural areas, for example, mm. by the private sector. They won't establish a factory there because they can't get their goods to the market and so on and so forth. So that's a very uh, well-known example. So the fact that our investment was, was actually a kind of sacrifice that was made in order to, to keep a fairly constant total expenditure growth caught up on us because that means that capacity was not built for increasing economic growth. So that's one of the reasons why, uh, and it was emphasized by the minister also in the, in, the, in the supplementary budget recently, why they acknowledged the need to invest in the economy uh, and to allocate more funds towards that. But it's not difficult. It's not easy because, as I said, there's a lot of, of demands that became institutionalized on the current expenditure of government. Another one is the salary and wages, the wage bill of government, which uh, the finance minister has said needs to be cut. Uh, there's been a long debate about that in, in the economy. fact is 
how can how can income or how can the wage bill increase in real terms if the economy doesn't grow and if the services that are rendered uh, deteriorates in quality because in the private sector one would normally find that real income increases with productivity or with new services or with better services. Those things seem to be absent at the moment. One shouldn't generalize, of course. There are some of the areas in government which are good and which are doing their function properly. Mm. But you can't say that for every every part of government. So those are the things uh, which... And just to sum up, I think Mm. it's about managing expectations and it's about uh, political choices that strengthens the hand of the finance minister to make sure that you can cut your cloth according to your, your coat according to your cloth. And what for me, there's there's been this debate about fiscal rules and fiscal councils and all those sort of things. Yes, they are they can be useful, but for me, the ultimate uh, guarantee, if I can use such a strong word, the ultimate guarantee of fiscal discipline depends on an umbilical cord between between the finance minister and the, in our case, the state president. Mm. If that falls subject to party political uh, contention and strife and all sorts of unsavory things like rent-seeking and uh, uh, fraudulent behavior, and then, you know, the finance minister is a very lonely figure. Mm. Look what we've heard just the last three days. In the whole of the country, we have about 280 municipalities. Only 20 of them received clean audits. Wow. You can't, you can't go on like that. You, and that brings me to, I think you, you, you picked up, we can cut, <laughs> come back to your favorite quote if you want. Yes, to <laughs> I was just thinking of my favorite quote. Because, <laughs> I mean, you've, you sort of pulled this all together so nicely, and I'll, I'll read it because it is my favorite. You say, and the entire bureaucracy needs to function with some commitment as well, an ethos of national service that is or should be unrelated to party political views and sentiments. And I think that was very well said. I think it is about that ethos and, and being able to be on the right page to take, into, you know, take responsibility for what you say is not only the fiscal responsibility, but the responsibilities that lie within the economy. I think it was very, very well said. <laughs> may, may, may I just add something to that? Uh, yes. You know, this is not a new question. I remember, you know, in 94, when I was in government working at the time, there was this debate, you know, which model, you know, is appropriate for South Africa going into the new South Africa, as it was called mm. at the time. Should it be the kind of American model, which uh, at the time this the saying was that every time the uh, incumbent government changes, 4,000 
people in Washington lose their jobs and are replaced by new political appointments. Should it be that model or should it be the French model? Where the French model, if I remember the sort of talk at the time correctly, says that, that, you know, you have to have a professional public service. In a sense, when a new government comes into place, the offer to the new government is a set of professional people. I mean, someone to, to have graduated from some of the prestige universities in, in France will be the professional people serving the next government. Mm. In Italy, the story is that politicians don't matter because <laughs> after the Second World War, they've had about 60 different governments. <laughs> <laughs> but what matters are the people that run the business. So, um, it's a bit extreme, but anyway, <laughs> I think the question is, you know, what do you need? And in my view, I think there's uh, a commitment to national and professional service delivery rather than submission to party political dominance. For me, seems a better idea today. But that flies in the face of cadre deployment and all those sort of things. And we have this, and we had it in the past. I remember when I was working in government in the late 80s. At one point, the message came through to me that I was sort of in a fairly senior position at the time. But the message came through to me that the minister that to which our division was responsible thinks that, you know, you know senior people should be members of the National Party which was the governing party at the time. Mm. I immediately was so furious to hear this, to think that my political affiliation is a requirement for my service that I thought was trying to be a professional service. Mm. Uh, and I almost said, over my dead body. But <laughs> luckily I didn't, I didn't say that because it would have been self, could have been self-fulfilling. Anyway... <laughs> So, and, and, and this extends further, Margot. How can the parliament? How can parliament effectively be the custodian of the public purse, as it's sometimes called, mm. when no parliamentarian can exercise a conscience vote on fiscal matters of great importance, such as state capture, uh, bloated debt, or budgets? Uh, fraudulent behavior, excessive spending. If they just have to obey to the crack of the political party whip, can one really expect good governance to prevail? Yeah, it's a very difficult, a very difficult place to be. And I think definitely something we need to look at addressing I think on that note, Professor, it has been an absolute pleasure having you with us today. Is there, I think you have dropped the mic, as they say. <laughs> if there is anything else you would like to add, please, please do. Otherwise, it has been an absolute pleasure having you with us. Uh, uh, just, just one last thought, uh, Margot. 
coming back to the question of, of fiscal sustainability. Uh, fiscal sustainability requires major, major structural economic reform and higher economic growth. There's no two ways about that. But over and above, reforms that are necessary in government finances. The income distribution must improve because of market income, more than because of government transfers in the long term. Mm. However important, you know, government transfers and subsidies can be from time to time. Thanks. Cool. Thank you once again, Professor. We really appreciate having the opportunity to speak to you. And also a big thank you to our listeners. And remember for more updates on our podcasts or upcoming seminars, please take a look at our website and social media platform. This is your host, Margot G from the Ursa podcast series. Thank you till next time. <laughs>